Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Yale Program for the Study of Antisemitism, or YPSA, and the Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University host a panel event on the origins of anti-Semitic thought in early Christianity and the ancient world, entitled Antisemitism in the Ancient Mediterranean, Early Christianity, and Anti-Judaism. The panel consists of five papers from scholars in the field. This event is part of YPSA's regular conference and lecture programming that occurs throughout the academic year. Okay, I think we are going to get started. Uh, I'm Maurice Samuels, a professor in the French department and the director of the Yale program for the study of antisemitism. And I'd like to welcome you all uh, here today for this exciting panel on antisemitism in the ancient Mediterranean question mark, early Christianity and anti-Judaism. So when we started the Yale program for the study of anti-Semitism almost two years ago now, uh, our intention was to cast light on the entire history of anti-Semitism. So I was really happy when discussions with Elizabeth Goldhirsch Yellen led to the idea of a conference on the origins of Judeophobia within early Christian theology. Uh, and this panel is intended as a kind of trial balloon uh, to explore the possibility of a bigger conference on the subject. So I really look forward to hearing what our panelists have to say about this and also to getting uh, input from, from you, the audience, uh, in our discussion period after. Um, we're going to have uh, five papers that are going to be uh, 20 minutes, and I'll introduce each of the uh, speakers right before they speak, um, but uh, I first want to say a few words of thanks. Um, first, uh, to Elizabeth Goldhirsch Yellen, who unfortunately can't be here today, as well as uh, Susan Grinnell, who is here, uh, for making this event possible. I also want to thank Yale's Department of Religious Studies and the Judaic Studies Program at Yale for co-sponsoring the event. Um, I'm deeply grateful to Hindi Nyman and to Dale Martin uh, here on the panel for their expert guidance in, in putting uh, the event together today. Um, it was really their intellectual vision that shaped today's panel. Um, and finally, I want to thank uh, Anessa Laskova and uh, the entire staff of the Whitney Humanities Center for all of their help. Uh, so our first speaker today, um, now I should say Ben just warned me that he's going to be uh, making a, speaking a little bit more about the connection with uh, contemporary theory issues today, and then we're really going to move back into, um, into uh, ancient, the ancient world. Um, so get ready for that. So Ben Dunning is uh, Associate Professor of Theology at Fordham University. He's a graduate of Penn and Harvard, and he's a specialist in New Testament and early Christianity, Christianity in late antiquity, theological anthropology, feminist and sexuality studies, critical theory, and hermeneutics. His research centers mostly on the study of early Christianity from the first through fourth centuries, which he brings into contact with recent critical theories of subjectivity. He's the author of Aliens and Sojourners, Self as Other in Early Christianity, published in 2009, and Specters of Paul, Sexual Difference in Early Christian Thought, published in 2011. And uh, both of those uh, came out with the University of Pennsylvania Press. I give you Ben. Hi. 
thanks so much to, to Hindi and to Maury for having me. Um, I kind of can't believe I'm going first, <laughs> just given uh, how much what I uh, have to talk about is um, to some degree only sort of obliquely related to the, the direct topic of the conference, but hopefully we'll be able to draw some, some interesting connections. Um, so, okay, as is increasingly well known, um, and I have written here as we've heard, but as I think we will hear, <laughs> uh, there are potentially some real problems with using a term like anti-Semitic with respect to early Christianity and the ancient world insofar as the term relies on a conceptual notion of race that doesn't map easily onto that context. Anti-Judaism as a term may be more helpful, at least with respect to antiquity, but it still raises a vexing set of questions about categories. For example, if there's no such thing as religion in a modern sense in the ancient world, then what exactly, if we want to you know, bring analytical precision to bear on the question, what exactly is Christian anti-Judaism being anti about? And there are also difficult questions here about temporality and history, the relationship of the present to the past and of both to possible contingent futures. When it comes to early Christianity, whatever categories we end up settling on, or however we muddle through the methodological conundrums, on some level we can see pretty clearly that these ancient Christian texts are mobilizing terms like Jew, Judaism, and Judaizing in often rather tortured, uh, if always necessary, attempts to negotiate sameness and difference, continuity and transformation. Some of these negotiations we could clearly characterize as supersessionist. Uh, possibly the letter to the Hebrews, a lot of scholars would argue that. Uh, to my mind, certainly the epistle of Barnabas. And some of them, such as John Chrysostom's vitriolic sermons, uh, the discourses against the Jews, are clearly anti-Jewish in the most straightforward sense of that term, and then some. But with all of this ancient Christian evidence, uh, the historical project here, as David Nirenberg has recently characterized it, and this is quoting him, is to demonstrate how different people put old ideas about Judaism to new kinds of work in thinking about their world, to show how this work engaged the past and transformed it, and to ask how that work reshaped the possibilities for thought in the future. Uh, in his brand new and uh, magisterial study of anti-Judaism in the Western tradition, and this just came out a couple of months ago, Nirenberg makes the case that, quote, anti-Judaism should not be understood as some archaic or irrational closet in the vast edifices of Western thought. It was rather one of the basic tools with which that edifice was constructed, end quote. Now, if he's right, or even just partially right, then it means that with respect to the question of anti-Judaism and early Christianity, we need to be attentive not just to a few centuries in antiquity, but also to the power of ancient ideas and ancient strategies uh, to advance, reproduce, and mutate through time. There may rarely be any straightforward or clearly causal relationship between the foreignness of the past and the so-called common sense of the present, and thus we always need careful historical work that emphasizes the disconnect. But Nirenberg also warns, and I would agree, that, quote, at this particular moment and on these particular questions, the peril of fantasizing our freedom from the past is great, end quote. So with that in mind, I'm going to spend my time today, um, to be clear, this is what I was invited to do, uh, so I hope it's not too tedious, um, 
talking not primarily about early Christianity, but about contemporary philosophy. And specifically, a strand of continental thinking that has recently picked up the Apostle Paul and early Christianity as a resource to theorize Marxist politics, a theory of the human subject, and what generally gets called a new universalism. Uh, two of the biggest names here many of us are no doubt familiar with are Elaine Badu and Slavo Žižek. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm just going to talk about Badu. Um, now, on the one hand, Badu and Žižek's readings of Paul and early Christianity have been extensively critiqued by biblical scholars for anachronism. And both of those critiques, most of those critiques, I think, are basically right. On the other hand, in some corners of scholarship, including the Society of Biblical Literature, there uh, has been and continues to be an enormous amount of enthusiasm for these so-called philosophical reclamations of Paul. And sometimes in ways that treat the question of anti-Judaism and other related questions as ones that we've in some sense uh, gotten over or that can be left cleanly in the past, that is the historical context of the original texts, even as we then reappropriate these texts in the present for new philosophical and political projects. But I want to suggest, along the same lines as Nirenberg, that some ways of thinking in the Christian tradition, and uh, here I would include a number of anti-Jewish strategies, run so deep that when putatively abandoned or moved beyond, they merely go underground, uh, a dynamic wherein they still continue to exert force. It just sometimes gets increasingly hard to see. In the case of Badu, however, I don't actually think it's that hard to see, and this is one of the reasons that I'm sort of mystified by how excited a number of biblical scholars have gotten about his reading of Paul. Uh, but be that as it may, there's a repetition here of some very ancient gestures in a distinctly modern key, a repetition that calls for both historical perspective and ongoing critical interrogation. Let me know when I'm running out of time. I'm going to launch into the Badu stuff. All right, so St. Paul, the foundation of universalism, in this book, as elsewhere, Badu offers a Marxist polemic against the political significance of identity, uh, of particularity, whether that's ethnic identity, gender identity, sexual identity, etc. And he uses the Apostle Paul and the earliest Christian tradition to do so, seeing in Paul the resources to articulate a newly invigorated theory of the human subject in terms of what he calls a universal singularity. On Badu's reading, the proliferating fragmentation of identities in the postmodern world generates political impotence and just works to feed the all-devouring machine of global capitalism. What we need to resist this machine, he argues, is a way of thinking a new kind of subject. And this is what Badu sees in Paul. He calls the apostle a poet thinker of the event, proclaiming a gospel that announces and institutes a new universal subject <coughs> in a discourse that wipes out prevailing differences so that the new subject answers to nothing but the radical singularity of the event. And radical fidelity to this event is all that matters. Uh, for Paul, the event, of course, is Christ's resurrection. Now, Badu doesn't believe in that. He thinks the resurrection is strictly a fiction. But it doesn't matter to him. What he's interested in in Paul uh, is a kind of structural and conceptual resource for thinking the possibility of what he sees as a total rupture, a radical break that ushers in this new possibility of a universal subject. Now, to make this case, he argues that Paul positions the universal subject in terms of four discourses, each of which constitutes a subject. So he's got these four, the Greek discourse, the Jewish discourse, the Christian discourse, and the mystical discourse. 
The Greek discourse is the discourse of philosophy, cosmic order, nature, totality, and it, it constitutes a subject that Badu calls the figure of the wise man. The Jewish discourse is the discourse of the sign, the exception, the notion of election, and the subject that it constitutes is the figure of the prophet. Badu sees support for this in 1 Corinthians 1.22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. Unsurprisingly, Badu is not a fan of either. Why not? Because he sees them as fundamentally interdependent. The Greek discourse of cosmic mastery and totality has its necessary exception, the particularity of the Jewish sign. And as such, neither one can be truly universal, since each discourse on some level presupposes the other one. Thus, both, as he sees it, uncritically capitulate to some kind of law, whether that's trying to master the natural law of the cosmos in its totality or rooting salvation in the exceptional status of a divinely ordained particularistic law. Either way, Badu sees a dead end. Instead, he argues, Paul proclaims a third discourse, the Christian discourse, one that rejects both cosmic totality and exceptional sign as starting points. Instead, Paul begins from a site of radical rupture, the event, the resurrection of Christ. And because the event brings about a situation that is absolutely new, it brings with it the possibility of a universal subject. Uh, in contrast to the Greek wise man or the Jewish uh, prophet, here we have Paul, the Christian apostle. Uh, so there's a polemic here against knowledge in both its philosophical or Greek form and its revelatory, particularistic, or Jewish form. Uh, and here Badu turns to 1 Corinthians again, this time to 128, which he sees as one of the most radical statements in the Pauline corpus. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are. So where are we? Badu's Paul sees the ongoing interplay of Greek cosmic totality and its Jewish exception, and then the radical rupture of the Christian event that undercuts both and opens up the possibility for something totally new. So this is Christian discourse, and it's what he wants to protect at all costs. But there's also a danger he sees on the other side, and he characterizes this in terms of a fourth discourse, the discourse of mysticism, and that's what marks the limit of this third Christian discourse. For Badu, mysticism is what happens when the Christian subject falls into a kind of silent and mystical intimacy, the experience of miracle, in ways that are limited only to the subject who experiences the miracle. And so here again, we're back at the same problem. It's not universal. Thus, Badu claims Paul needs to protect his third position from contamination by this fourth position. Now, here's where I want to highlight some important connections that are at least hopefully a little bit relevant to the topic of today's panel. How exactly does Badu argue against this mystical fourth discourse? He connects it metonymically to the second discourse, to Judaism. That is, he argues that insofar as mystical experience gives the subject a claim to some sort of exceptional particularistic knowledge, it runs the risk of collapsing back into the second Jewish discourse, the discourse of sign or the exception. The only legitimate site of exception for Badu is that of Christian grace, brought about by radical fidelity to the absolutely new event. Meanwhile, second and fourth discourses, Jewish and mystical, are irredeemably problematic for him because they unify a concrete static identity for specific subjects. Whereas the third Christian discourse makes a universal subject possible through the ongoing nullifying action of the Pauline not but, as in Romans 6.14, 
you are not under law, but under grace. Badu reads this not as pointing to the negation of all the frozen particularities of identity, and the but as the always ongoing process of taking up the position of the universal subject, here which he construes as what he calls a becoming rather than a state. Meanwhile, the mystical discourse is assimilated to the Jewish sign and thus to Judaism and the abrogated law, and accordingly repudiated. So is this set of philosophical moves anti-Jewish? Um, absolutely. Or at least uh, I would argue so, and many others do it well as well. Badu doesn't think they are. I disagree. Uh, elsewhere, in an essay on uses of the word Jew, Badu makes clear that his paradigmatic, authentic Jew is one who forgoes election, singularity, particularity, for the sake of the universal. In other words, put most simply, the true Jew, that is the one Badu approves of, is the Pauline Christian. There's a lot more that we could unpack there philosophically, but for the few minutes I have left, I want to connect this more specifically to the topic for today by drawing attention to some of the ways in which Badu inherits and refigures in a new key some very ancient gestures that are already visible in early Christianity. Throughout Badu's reading of Paul, we see the desire for a full and radical break. And something like that desire shows up in early Christianity as well, under the name of Marcion. Indeed, Badu throughout exhibits a general nervousness about the Hebrew Bible that is not unconnected to his negative appraisal of Jewish prophecy. But on a somewhat more subtle level, I think it's important to pay attention to the way in which Badu handles three paradigmatic figures, all from the Hebrew Bible, and thus on his reading, falling under the sphere of the Jewish. Uh, and one senses when reading the book that he wishes that these three could just kind of, or you know, that in various ways they could be erased away, except for the fact that they all show up uh, rather inconveniently for his purposes in Paul's text. So first, Moses. Moses is the bad guy dismissed by Badu as someone that Paul really doesn't like very much. I mean, he basically says that. I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. Um, you know, Paul doesn't like Moses because he is a man of the letter and the law. Abraham, on the other hand, is the hero, but only because Badu rereads him not as a Jew, but as the one who anticipates both Paul and, uh, quoting Badu, what he calls a universalism of the Jewish sight. Now, you don't have to look very far in early Christian literature to see versions of both these moves, the denigration of Moses and the de-Judaizing of Abraham. Justin Martyr, for example, does both. And if I have time, I'll just give you a couple quotes from Trifo. So this is Justin. Our hope is not through Moses or through the law, otherwise our customs would be the same as yours. And a bit later on, furthermore, all these men were just and pleasing in the sight of God, yet they kept no Sabbaths. The same can be said of Abraham and his descendants down to the time of Moses. End quote. The third paradigmatic figure Badu has to, has to deal with is Adam. And here he wrenches apart Paul's own thought, dismissing Adam on the basis of Romans 5 as nothing more than a synecdoche for death. But this is decidedly not Adam's sole typological significance in Paul's text, or in early Christian thinking more broadly. Rather, Paul foregrounds an Adam-Price typology, first Adam and second Adam, not only in Romans 5, but also in 1 Corinthians 15, in a way that situates human beings in paradigmatic terms defined by both. Now, it's easy to read the biblical story of Adam as prior to, and thus outside of, the problem of Jewish particularity that Badu wants to transcend. And yet Adam's still a problem for him. 
so much that he has to really dif- distort the force of Paul's text in order to relegate him to a position of relative unimportance. And I think that's really significant because it sh- throws into fairly sharp relief the problematic that Badu is refusing to negotiate in any substantial or meaningful sense. Rather than total and absolute newness, what we have here is the interplay of sameness and difference. Early Christian thinkers turned to these paradigmatic figures from the Hebrew Bible, and especially Christ and Adam, to wrestle with anthropological problems of continuity versus transformation and how those two interplay. Their answers are often incoherent, unsatisfying, and ethically troubling, but they at least can see the ongoing force of the problem. Whereas by relegating the figure of Adam to insignificance, I would argue, Badu takes a crucial shortcut that ultimately shows his hand, or rather his sleight of hand, to my mind, a refusal to engage the irreducible problem of interrelatedness in the name of a putatively absolute break. Badu wants a universal Christian subject safe from the contaminating threat of Judaism, And we could argue that this desire in other historically specific forms also animates the thought of many early Christian thinkers, from Ignatius of Antioch to John Chrysostom. But Ignatius, Chrysostom, and others actually engage the problem that Badu pretends isn't there. And as Andrew Jacobs points out in his new and excellent study of Christ's circumcision, even as these ancient Christians take up the issue in ugly and anti-Jewish ways, Uh, Their texts simultaneously and irreducibly point to, this is quoting Jacobs, the reminder and remainder of the Jewish voice required to establish Christian truth that can therefore never be silenced. Thus, the ancient texts themselves, in some of their most troubling and anti-Jewish moments, simultaneously work to undermine the coherence, fixity, and finality of the so-called universal Christian subject, that Badu wants to reclaim. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, and I think that was a really excellent lead-in to uh, antiquity. So Hindi was right about that. Um, Okay, so our next speaker uh, today is coming from the the farthest away, Jörg Frey. He's professor of New Testament studies at the theological faculty of the University of Zurich. Uh, His work focuses on Johannine literature, ancient Judaism and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Judeo-Christianity, the apocryphal literature, and the methodology of exegesis and theology of the New Testament. He's the author of many books. Uh, I'll name just two titles in my English translation, so please excuse me if it's not quite right. Uh, Eugen Druermann and Biblical Exegesis, a Critical Methodological Analysis, 1995, and Johannine Eschatology, 1997. He's also edited many critical editions and books of essays. Um, I'll name just uh, one of the ones in English, uh, Studies in the Book of Jubilees, 1997. Also, for our purposes, Jewish Identity in the Greco-Roman World, 2007. Uh, and finally, he's the editor-in-chief of the Moore Zebek uh, book series on the New Testament. Thank you so much for the invitation here, and I'm glad to be with you at that panel. We will now go a bit back, more back from philosophy to history, and I would like to sketch some aspects of the so-called parting of the ways between Jews and Christians in antiquity, which is uh, important for our topic, of course. When trying to explore and explain the facets of anti-Judaism in antiquity, and especially the roots of early Christian anti-Judaism, 
we have to focus on the separation between emerging Christianity and synagogal Judaism. How could the Jesus movement change from a Jewish messianic sect, what it was, to a predominantly Gentile group critically opposed and even polemically opposed to Jews and Judaism? This is important because the polemics against Judaizers, Pharisees and scribes, or also the Judaioi in John, sounds quite different if it's still a part of an inner Jewish debate or if it's a polemic from outside. And some polemical expressions probably changed their character from uh, an inner Jewish debate, if you know it even more polemically between the Qumran community and other contemporary Jewish factions, to an anti-Jewish polemic and the context changed again when the church was no longer a minority in the empire, but finally the majority linked with the political power. Scholarship has named that process the parting of the ways. James Dunn was one of the uh, chiefs of that uh, term. This concept implies that there was originally one religious way, which eventually split into two different, ultimately opposed ways, regardless for what reasons the divide occurred. However, scholarship is divided with regard to when, why, and how the split happened. There is even a provoking book title, No Parting of the Ways, which points to the fact at least, I think it's overstated, it points to the fact at least that the links between the synagogue and church lasted longer than the retrospective view would suggest. The spectrum of views is wide, and I will give a quite superficial sketch before pointing to some in my view, underestimated factors. It would be a big and promising project, which I am inclined to call reconceptualizing the parting of the ways. So what are the concepts? First, when? Early or late? Classical Christian and Jewish views located the split very early, thus introducing the later, anachronistically introducing the later situation of two separated religious bodies into the ancient time and actually excluding the early Christian orders from Judaism. So for a long time, New Testament texts were not regarded as Jewish texts, of course. Uh, this has changed in more recent scholarship, uh, which is very remarkable. Traditional Christian dogmatics thought that Jesus himself had opposed Judaism, especially if the Johannine discourses were taken as authentic words of Jesus. And modern theology, I name Hans Käsemann, especially the new quest for the historical Jesus, tried to show that Jesus' uniqueness is where he fundamentally differs from the contemporary Jewish prophets, wisdom teachers, or rabbis. But even if some features in his figure may appear unique, scholarship has perceived very clear, already Wellhausen has phrased that, that Jesus was a Jew, not a Christian. And even as a Messiah, he would be quite a part of contemporary Judaism, Especially since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that Second Temple Judaism was much more plural than was thought before. Another influential view that reckons with a very early split was supported by the History of Religion School. When Paul is primarily interpreted from Hellenistic pagan influences and called the founder of Christianity, so Gerd Lüdemann in his book title and also the Jewish uh, author Haya Maccabee, or when it's said that in his polemic against contemporary Judaizers, Paul rejected Judaism. Then, that in his disregard of circumcision, he was actually an apostate, or that he saw himself 
deeply separated from Judaism, the split between Judaism and Pauline Gentile Christianity is located very early. However, in spite of the struggles and polemics in Paul's missional work, Paul's identity as an apostle was still Jewish, linked to Israel, and until his end, he practiced this solidarity by traveling to Jerusalem and so on. He would never have imagined a split between Jesus' followers and Israel, what was actually happening after his time. On the other side of the spectrum, there are views of some predominantly Jewish orders. So quite provokingly, Daniel Boyarin interprets the early Christian movement in the first centuries still as a part of an open and variegated Judaism, with the result that we can only speak of a divide when the two religious bodies, Christianity and also Rabbinic Judaism, have established a fixed and mutually exclusive dogmatic system, which is not before the time of Constantine. Even more radical, though not very helpful, is the terminology suggested by the French Jewish scholar Simon Mimouni, who calls the whole of ancient Christianity still Jewish or Judeo-Christianity, even until the early Muslim time. This is again a hint that the Jewish influence was strong for a long time, especially in the East, in Syria. But it is true that the Jewish Christian groups, the Ebionites and Nazarenes, as described in some sources, found themselves increasingly marginalized and finally disappear in the 4th and 5th century, and after that we have no sources of some kind of Jewish Christianity. So the parting of the way seems to be an extended and variegated process, probably starting as early as in the 1st century, but lasting down to the 4th or 5th centuries, and with the result that Jewish practice was increasingly criticized and finally excluded from the mostly Gentile Christian church. Now I come to the why and how. <clears throat> Such a long process includes, of course, many and different factors at different times. There is not one factor, not one event. Any unifying theory is problematic. And in my view, we should consider that there was not only doctrinal and theological factors, but even more the aspects of daily life and then the social and political context that led to an increased distance and separation. An often mentioned factor in scholarship has been Christology. Is the belief in Jesus as the Messiah or the subsequent development of a high Christology, a view that of Jesus as a divine being, the main reason for the split? Earlier research has interpreted the development of a high Christology as an effect of Hellenization, influence of pagan views and cults already in Paul, and also in later authors. More recently, the debate has changed, especially in the British context, and it has become clear that most of the Christological views and titles could be developed from a Jewish language matrix, at least, from Jewish elements, as Second Temple texts attest to ideas of the exaltation of patriarchs, intermediary figures such as wisdom or the logos, or angelic beings that were then important in the phrasing of the Christological beliefs. So the belief in Jesus as Messiah, risen or exalted, uh, was not necessary, uh, necessarily a step beyond the borders of Judaism which were not yet clearly defined at that time. It is true, however, that the view of Jesus as a divine being could cause and had to cause resistance among 
a number of many contemporary Jews, as is reflected in the Gospel of John, when it said, he makes himself a god. It's clear that they uh, find this um, an, an abandon, abandoning the monotheistic belief. Important studies, so especially John Lee Martin, have assumed on this basis of some passages in John where the unique term aposynagogos is mentioned, that there was a kind of formal expulsion of the Jewish Jesus followers from the synagogue, and this was linked with traditions of an extension of the curse on the heretics, the Birkat Haminim, in the Shmonei Esre, the prayer of 18 uh, invocations, the most important Jewish prayer by the rabbis of Yavne after the destruction of the temple. If this was true, and the rabbis would have changed the synagogal prayer with the effect that the Jewish Christians, the Nozerim, would have been, not been able to pronounce these prayers anymore, lest they would accursed themselves, so they were actually expelled from the synagogue, according to that, to that theory. However, more recent Judaic studies have shown that this construction is unsubstantiated and should be abandoned. The traditions about Yavne are laid or are uh, taking together uh, traditions from a larger period. The heretics accursed can be very different groups. The minim are different groups, and the insertion of the term nozerim, that means the Jewish Christians, is much later in the sources. Moreover, it is unclear how quickly the rabbis of Yavne got influence, especially in the diaspora. So uh, we cannot. Uh, use these texts to explain maybe the uh, passages in the fourth gospel. So the idea of any formal expulsion of the Jewish Christians from the synagogue must be abandoned, at least if it's said uh, in one in one act uh, by the rabbis of Yavne. The only possible scenario for that is a separation of Jewish Christian groups from local synagogues in the different uh, areas of the empire. And if the fourth gospel originates in Asia Minor, we would have to consider the situation there. The anti-Jewish polemic in John, but also the polemical mention of the synagogue of the Satan in Revelation 2 and 3, may reflect such a separation which caused, may have caused severe problems for the smaller Christian groups um, that had an uncertain legal and social status, whereas the synagogue in those towns was a well-established group in the society in the towns of the diaspora in Asia Minor. If Christian authors blame the synagogue for expelling them and even contributing to their isolation and persecution, it is very difficult to decide what is true and what is behind that uh, claim and what's only a one-sided perception. With these scenarios, we are chronologically at the end of the first century, at the turn to the second century, which is also the time at which Christians are increasingly identifiable for outsiders, especially for Roman authorities. We know of the Flavia Domitilla in the uh, time of Domitian and so on. A few years later, we have then the letter of Pliny the Younger, which are the first documents of trials against Christians, denunciations, and so on. But the open question is, however, whether Jews or the synagogue could contribute to endangering Jesus' followers and thus uh, give a reason for such a kind of polemics as we have it in John or Revelation. I would like to point to two factors that have been somewhat neglected uh, in scholarship and that may explain uh, the kind of process we have to reckon with 
uh, and if, especially if we go to the second and third century, those factors could be prolonged in some way. One aspect has to do with the empire and with the consequences of the Jewish war with the dis uh, destruction of the temple in 70 CE. The war had severely afflicted Jewry in Eretz Israel, but the communities in the diaspora were largely untouched apart from the number of migrants or refugees they had to take. There was only one but severe change for their life. The former temple tax transferred to Jerusalem by all male adult Jews from the diaspora was now changed into the fiscus judaicus, the special tax for Jews, a tax to be paid by all Jews, male and female, from three to 60 years to the Roman authorities precisely to the Jupiter Capitolinus, pagan imperial deity in Rome. All Jews had to be inscribed into tax lists, and a new tax authority was established to collect the text. Apart from the fact that it was a humiliating act against the Jews to be forced to support a pagan deity, this meant an important change in the structure of membership of synagogues. Before membership was a private matter. An agreement between the community and the member or the proselyte who wanted to enter, now it became a matter of public registration. The authorities knew now who was a Jew and who was not. But there was a gray zone. What about God-fearers, sympathizers at the margins of the synagogue? What about apostates or strongly assimilated Jews who did not take part in many of the ceremonies? What about the Jesus followers? Were they Jews? Did Jesus followers pay the tax? Jewish Jesus followers, perhaps? Gentile Christians who had never been part of the synagogue? Probably not. And although the Hitherto had shared the privileges granted to Jews by the emperors, they were now certainly not considered Jews, but possibly adherents of a new superstition, as Roman authors called Christianity. And it cannot be ruled out that synagogues also had an interest to make clear that those suspicious elements were not part of their community because they were established and were uh, honorable in the society, and the other elements were suspicious. So I think that new political framework inserted after the uh, Jewish war, after 70, the Fiscus Judaicus established in that time, most rigorously collected under the mission, was a factor, an important factor, and an often neglected factor, to push the decision who was a Jew and who was not. And that's an ongoing institutional and public separation between synagogues and Christian communities uh, was pushed by that, by that uh, incident, by those political uh, frameworks. It had, of course, negative consequences at first for the smaller groups of the Jesus followers who were in that uncertain legal status in the empire. A second neglected factor may bring us back to the Pauline period, and I think the split originates even a bit earlier I'm quite convinced that Paul did not want and did not imagine a split between Jews and Gentile believers. He was much concerned to keep them together in Romans 14, 15. He advocates even uh, the lifestyle of the Jewish Christians in Rome. 
But there were pro practical problems. Eating together with Gentiles who were uncircumcised and did not observe purity and foot loss was not without problems. And if Paul expected the acceptance of Gentiles without imposing circumcision on them, he demanded a lot of tolerance from the Jewish part of the community. The Jewish Jesus followers were uh, called to accept uh, Gentiles who were not clean in the classical sense. We can see that many contemporaries of Paul were opposed to his view. In Antioch, the incident of Antioch shows that the community did not accept that. Or then in Galatia, the uh, preachers uh, in entering there and elsewhere. But how did that affect the affiliation to local synagogues? Jewish believers in Jesus could participate there as the way of degree of participation in the synagogue was rather open and uh, there were many possibilities. Jews could participate in the service of the Shabbat, in festivals, in schooling, or only in the social network. Or it was simply considered part of that ethnos in the uh, towns. This was rather different with Jesus believers. They regularly wanted to eat. Those Jesus believers always wanted to eat. And that was a very new thing. It was not, not uh, the habit of, well, synagogue or Judaism. So the meal community, the problems in the meal community, problems occur for the observant Jews. Their meals could not take place in the synagogal rooms, but in separate houses, house churches. This kind of organizational separation of the Christian meal community from synagogal community may be an initial factor for a later separation and increased distance. And there is an interesting uh, passage in the Acts of the Apostles when Paul in Ephesus chooses to go out of the, with his group and with his teaching out of the synagogue to the school of Tyrannus to a neutral place. Elsewhere in, in Acts, normally the uh, Jesus group is expelled, is thrown out, there is some rumor uh, they are thrown out. Here Paul chooses, well, we go, we go to a different place. Maybe just because there was another group already in the Jewish Christian group, already in, within the synagogue, and the Pauline mixed group could not meet, could not have their meals in that period. So I, I think this is an, an, um, an aspect which is also uh, underestimated that with a focusing on meals and meal community, the practical reasons uh, led to an organizational uh, divide, which of course then uh, could lead to a, a more stronger split. The two brief scenarios show that it was rather the problems of social life and political circumstances than only doctrinal and theological reasons that led to the parting and finally polemical opposition of the ways. And we have to look at those uh, social life problems as intensely as on the doctrinal and theological aspects. Theological arguments, the debate about the scriptures, the charge of the dissolution of the law, of heresy against the Jesus followers, or the charge of unbelief against the Jews, the blame for the death of Jesus, and the interpretation of the destruction of the temple as a punishment against them, are rather a secondary reasoning in the mutual establishing of different and even opposed identities. The identity is already established when in the second century, 
a Gentile Christian, or they can speak of the Christians as a third race between Jews and Gentiles. And with the widening of the gap, the existence of Jewish believers in Jesus, which was so self-evident in the earliest period, is increasingly endangered, and they, the Jewish Christians, ultimately disappear in the fifth century. The tragedy of the split becomes then most evident when preachers after Constantine, such as Augustine or John Chrysostom, reuse the earlier polemics in a situation where the church was linked with the imperial power and the Jews were increasingly marginalized and endangered. I will stop here. I think I have shown how I can imagine to reconceptualize that parting pattern, and there is a number of neglected factors that contribute to the split and implicitly or explicitly also to the growth of anti-Jewish polemics in antiquity. Thank you for your interest. Okay, thank you so much. Our, our next speaker uh, is probably well known to everyone here. Uh, Dale Martin is Woolsey Professor of Religious Studies and Director of Graduate Studies in Religious Studies at Yale. Uh, prior to returning to Yale, where he did his PhD, he taught at Duke University. He specializes in New Testament and Christian origins, including attention to social and cultural history of the Greco-Roman world. He's written many books, and I'll just cite uh, a few of them. Slavery is Salvation, uh, The Metaphor of Slavery in Pauline Christianity, 1990, uh, Inventing Superstition, From the Hippocratics to the Christians, 2004. My favorite title, Sex and the Single Savior, Gender and Sexuality in Biblical Interpretation, 2006. So I give you Dale Martin. In the interest of hoping to have some time at the end for a discussion among all of us and questions, I'm going to keep my comments quite brief. And I'm only going to talk about uh, anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism in the New Testament itself. Uh, first, all of us in the panel, I think, would have said there is no anti-Semitism in the ancient world because we think that anti-Semitism <coughs> is a race theory that was only possible with the arrival in the modern period of racial concepts. Uh, there are, we are increasingly convinced that people in the ancient world didn't group humanity into different races. They did recognize different ethnic, ethnic groups, Germans, Greeks, Romans. And in that way, Jews were considered the people of Judea, uh, the people who inhabit Judea, just like Egyptians are the people who come from Egypt. So since we don't think that races were concepts that were use, used in the ancient world, we quibble about not wanting to use the word anti-Semitism in the ancient world. But I, we have, I don't think we have any problem, most of us don't have any problem talking about anti-Judaism in the ancient world. And there certainly was anti-Judaism in the ancient world and in early Christianity. But then again, as I already implied, there were people who were anti-Greek or anti-Egyptian, anti-Scythians, anti-Thracians, anti-Romans. There were slurs and prejudices. Uh, we can find these in literature. Uh, all over the ancient Mediterranean that would attack just about any ethnic, any group that was recognized as an ethnic group. Of course, what counted as an ethnic group is not always certain either in the ancient world. For example, I've just read that they didn't tend to put Syrians often uh, in late antiquity into a, a, an ethnic category in the same way they did Jews or Romans or Greeks. You could even find, of course, a lot of racial, a lot of prejudice, not racial prejudice again, but ethnic prejudice against what we might call the largest ethnic group that wasn't really an ethnic group, barbar barbarians. You know, there's all kinds of writing against barbarians. The very word came to mean an ethnic slur. 
So there is definitely anti-Judaism, but it must be put in the context of other kinds of struggles between ethnic groups in the ancient Mediterranean. The next point I want to make is that I believe it's in some ways misleading and naive to talk about text being anti-Jewish. I prefer to think that texts don't have ideologies. Texts don't mean anything until they're interpreted and used by people, uh, is what I believe. And so I would hesitate to talk about texts having ideologies or texts being anti-Jewish. But of course, these texts have been used in ways that are anti-Jewish and in even ways since the early modern period of uh, anti-Semitism. But I would also stress texts can't oppress people in themselves. People oppress other people by using text often. So what I want to point out is simply quite briefly that different New Testament documents seem more or less inclined when read historically. That's what, by that I just mean when read as to what their meaning would have been for their first readers in antiquity and not what they, how they would have been read, say, by Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages or by theological readers even now. But when read historically in their own time, different New Testament sects seem more or less inclined to be anti-Jewish or at least supersessionist. And I would say that any Christian theology that is supersessionist is by that definition anti-Jewish. To briefly, supersessionism just re- refers to the idea that Israel has become obsolete, that God transferred his allegiance from Israel to the Christian church, and that therefore Christianity has supplanted, has superseded uh, Israel. There are some supersessionist themes, even within the New Testament itself. But I'm going to talk about this on a scale as I see it. First, Paul. This has already been talked about a bit, but Paul used to be seen as the founder of Christianity or the second founder of Christianity. A lot of us in the last 30 or 40 years have tried to point out that Paul never thought he was founding a new religion. Paul thought he was actually bringing in Gentiles into (coughs) Israel. So the scope of the scholarship on Paul has shifted remarkably from 50 years ago. We no longer take, for example, the first several chapters of Romans, which kind of have been read to be Lutheran doctrine about salvation by uh, uh, justification by faith apart from works, any works, Catholic works, whatever works. We now, this, this shift has actually moved to where we look at, often, uh, a lot of us look at Romans chapters 9 through 11 as being the most central part of, Rome, of that letter. And it's precisely there where Paul is talking to the Gentile followers of Jesus in Rome and saying, don't you look down on Israel. Don't look down on the Jews in your midst because they're still God's people. And even if some of them have been cut off momentarily, they can be grafted right back into the olive tree. And in fact, we, some of us really believe that Paul saw his mission as fulfilling Jewish prophecy from the Hebrew Bible in going out and getting Gentiles to come and accept the God of Israel. And he thought he had to do this because it was in the prophecies. Some of the prophets said, at the end of time, all the Gentiles, all the people of all nations will come to Jerusalem and they'll be included, they'll be worshiping the God of Israel. Paul believed what he was doing was helping the Messiah, Jesus, come back sooner because before the Messiah could come back, the full number of the Gentiles had to be brought not into just the church, but into Israel. And then he says, and then all Israel, all Israel shall be saved. Romans 11, 25-26. A few of us are so audacious as to believe that Paul actually was a universalist, a universalist, at least when it came to the Jews. Paul believed that all the Jews would eventually 
be safe. How he got there is very difficult to see. I think that he, I think Paul just imagined that Jesus would come back on a big cloud with armies of angels and all in his all his glory as the Messiah. And of course, Paul thought, well, then the Jews would just look up and say, oh, well, we were wrong. He is the Messiah after all. <laughs> Paul's mission was therefore to bring people in. So Paul was not a supersessionist. He never saw the church or another religion replacing Christian, uh, replacing Israel or Judaism. Matthew is could, could has been used often as the most anti-Semitic gospel because you get terrible language about Pharisees. This is where the Pharisees are called hypocrites. Pharisee becomes basically a, a synonym for hypocrite in, in English, the English language. You also have that terrible uh, sentence at, toward the last of the trial scene of Jesus when the Jews say, his blood be on us and our children, leading, of course, to the blood guilt libel that followed the Jews throughout Europe for 2,000 years. So Matthew has also often been read as the most uh, anti-Jewish of the Gospels for, for those reasons. But if you really read Matthew carefully, as I think more of us biblical scholars have been doing, we actually see Matthew as the most Jewish of Gospels. I teach my classes that Matthew expected that there would be Gentiles within his church, but he expected them to keep Torah. He expected them to keep all of the Jewish law. I think there's no way to see the author of Matthew as not expecting that Gentiles would themselves be circumcised to become part of the group, and also they would keep uh, the dietary laws. So in spite of Matthew looking at uh, anti-Semitic at the beginning, uh, the way most of us are reading him now, we say, well, no, this was actually a fight between Jews. This was a fight among different people who saw themselves as the correct interpreters of the Mosaic law. So Matthew is arguing with other Jews, but not because he sees Judaism as the problem. He just sees himself as representing the better interpretation of Moses. And, the, and it, so this is an, this is an intramur, intramural uh, argument that's going on, not an extramural argument going on. And I will use that image several times here. The book of Revelation has already been mentioned because the author there talks about those, the synagogue of Satan, Jews who say they are Jews but are not. Now, I would argue that's also not anti-Jewish because why would you say they're not the real Jews unless what you were saying was, I'm the real Jew. We're the real Jews. They're just not the real Jews. It's the same way that when I, I grew up in a fundamentalist church in Texas, and we believed that the Baptists were going to hell. They weren't real Christians because they didn't do exactly what we did. So we said we were the only Christians. Well, that's not anti-Christian to say we're the true Christians and they're not the true Christians. In the same way, I don't think the author of Revelation was, saw himself as being against Israel at all or against Jews at all. He just thought some of them didn't have the right form of it. The Gospel of John does sound, has lots of statements that speak very negatively about the Jews. And in fact, it's puzzled because you read the Gospel of John, and my students read it, and they say, it sounds, you've been telling us that Jesus is a Jew, but it sounds like to us that Jesus is talking about the Jews as if it's only them. And again, you have to say, well, this is still something of an intra-house fight that's going on because the author of the Gospel of John is not going to give up the claim to be Israel himself. So these are even the most, some of the most uh, anti-Jewish sounding things in the Gospel of John, most of us scholars would say is still representing a struggle over what is true Jewish identity. I think the one letter that I'll, and I'll end here, that I think is the most supersessionist uh, in, the, in the New Testament, I think Colossians, the pseudo-Pauline letters of Colossians and Ephesians, 
do sometimes give the feeling that we have left Judaism behind. It's almost a, new, a sense that we're doing something new. But those letters weren't written by Paul. They were written by later followers of Paul, and they represent, again, a stage in this sort of separation that uh, Jorg was talking about. It's a new... They are developing now a bit of a new social identity. And so... And I think the one letter that's the most this way is the letter to the Hebrews, which is actually not a letter. It calls itself a sermon, and it's not to Jews. So uh, we like to, you know, tell our students, the letter of the Hebrews in the New Testament is neither... It's actually a speech given to Gentile Christians to convince them that their form of liturgy, the Christian liturgy by this time, is a superior form to the form of liturgy being practiced in the synagogue. It's a higher thing. This is, and the, the letter of the Hebrews comes around to the end in uh, chapter 13, verse 13. It depicts, the author depicts Jesus. Jesus was not crucified within the walls of Jerusalem. He was crucified outside the walls. And then the Jerusalem becomes to represent the Jewish liturgy, the Jewish people, and, and in fact, something like Judy, what we would say is Judaism for the author of the letter to the Hebrews. This is my interpretation. I'll, if, I'm sorry to admit not all scholars agree with me, <laughs> but I'm right. Uh, the writer that read it Hebrews says, Jesus was crucified outside the walls, so let us go out to him. I see that as a call. For, him, for the writer of the Hebrews to say, let us leave the synagogue. Let us have our own identity outside what they're doing. And that really is supersessionist in my view. Thank you. Thank you, Dale, for that very, very interesting presentation. Um, our next speaker is Wayne Meeks. Uh, he's Woolsey Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Yale University, uh, where he also earned his PhD and began teaching in 1969. He's a specialist of the social history of early Christianity, the formation of early Christian morality, and of the Apostle Paul and the Gospels. His books include The First Urban Christians, 1983, The Moral World of the First Christians, 1986, The Origins of Christian Morality, The First Two Centuries, 1993, and Christ is the Question, 2006. He's also, of course, the author of several editions and collections of essays, and I was actually just reading a fascinating essay by him today on anti-Semitism among 20th century theologians. So I give you Wayne Meeks. Thank you, Morris. Um, most of what I would have said today has already been said by the previous speakers, so I can be very brief. Uh, you'll be glad to know. Uh, what I want to do is to enlarge on one of those examples that uh, Dale Martin has just mentioned, namely the Gospel of John, which he suggested is one of the documents in the New Testament, which on the face of it seems most anti-Jewish. It's a very strange piece of literature. If you've tried to read it lately, uh, you might admit to yourself, if not to others, that it's very weird. It does strange things to the reader, really jerks you around. Just when you think you've got it, the principal protagonist, Jesus, pulls a rug right out from under the character that you thought you were identifying with. And first thing you know, you're beginning to wonder if anything is quite safe for you to read on. Um, therefore, it's no surprise 
that on the question we're talking about this afternoon, you can put it on both sides. Like the Gospel of Matthew, as Dale said, but for rather different reasons and in quite a different way, I think you can argue that it is simultaneously the most anti-Jewish and the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Um, most Jewish? Yes. Because unless you have some familiarity with the scriptures and traditions of Judaism, with its main characters of its identifying narrative, you won't understand a word in this book. Um, the author, the community traditions he employed, and presumably his audience, if they understood what was going on, and sometimes one wonders, had to be intimately familiar with both the scripture and a variety of interpretive traditions of ways of reading that scripture in antiquity. On the other hand, as you read along, you discover very quickly that the evangelist is doing some strange things with those traditions and those scriptures. Sometimes it almost seems like a reductio ad absurdum when Jesus ends up saying things that make you say, huh, that's what this text means? Um, and that's one reason why the fourth gospel appears to be the most anti-Jewish of the gospels in the New Testament. It can be argued that if one had to select a single verse that had the most dire consequences in later, Jewish, uh, later Christian anti-Judaism, it would be the one that Dale mentioned earlier from the Gospel of Matthew, his blood be on us and on our children, which gets played upon constantly in medieval anti-Jewish uh, anti pogroms and the like. But surely a close runner-up would be this from John, Jesus speaking to the Jews, you are the offspring of your father, the devil, and you want to do what your father craves. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Um, that's not very nice, and <laughs> it seems rather strange in a intra-Jewish conversation, doesn't it? This is a strange dialogue anyway, set in the Jerusalem temple with the Jews. Indeed, <coughs> according to all the standard translations, with the Jews who had come to believe in him. Chapter 8, verse 31. Is it the Jews? Should we translate as the Jews? This is, a whack. this is a very complicated question which I do not intend to go into at depth. Lots of people have and arrived at quite different uh, uh, results in here. There are some places where the Judeans are simply the Judeans, i.e. those people who happen to live in Judea contrasted with the people who live in Galilee, like Jesus and his first disciples, 
or in Samaria, like the Samaritan woman he meets in chapter 4, and those people who come to Jesus because of her testimony and then believe because of what they hear from Jesus. Furthermore, just this dialectic between those people who are Galileans, those people who are Samaritans, at least in this one chapter, and those people who are Judeans is what makes the thing work. And therefore, some scholars have argued that Hoyudaioi should always be translated the Judeans and simply to be taken geographically. That doesn't quite work, does it? Uh, when someone in chapter uh, 9 complains, a Judean, that the Judeans have put him out of the synagogue, I don't know quite what to do with that if it's only a geographical term. So it's obviously more complicated from that. And not all Judeans are bad guys. The fellow in chapter 9, in fact, a Judean born blind who's been healed by Jesus and now becomes a believer and goes on to stand up to the uh, Judean authorities and uh, therefore is forced out of the synagogue, um, is obviously a paradigmatic good guy. Um, so um, not all Judeans are bad guys. Uh, not all of them can be understood as people living in Judea. Who are they? And there's a special question about who the good guys are. There's a special and positive place accorded to Galileans in this gospel, which seems to have some kind of symbolic valence beyond just the historical recollection that, oh, by the way, Jesus himself, obviously, we remember, did happen to come from the Galilee, and so did most of his first followers. Something more going on here. Uh, there are the places where Jesus comes into the Galilee because people in Judea were trying to kill him, and no one believed in him there, but when he comes to the Galilee, the Galileans believed because they had seen the signs that he did in Jerusalem. Moreover, the Samaritans of all people, who are very carefully distinguished from the Judea, the Judeans, the Judei, whoever they were, have a significant place in chapter 4, not paralleled in any of the other Gospels. Um, indeed, Jesus himself is called in one place by those who are opposing him a Samaritan. Are you not a Samaritan and possessed of a demon along with it? And let's not forget in the Gospel of John, as in the rest of the New Testament, Israel has a very positive valence. The good guys are Israel. What is perhaps most surprising about the Gospel of John is that the goyim make no appearance at all apart from the necessary role of Pilate and his soldiers. The whole cast of characters otherwise is drawn from those people we would call Jews or, exceptionally, from that other rival tradition of Israel, the Samaritans. Now, how do you make sense of all that? Um, I would argue that 
as uh, your try has already suggested, we have to think of some town, not one of those great metropolitan cities, but some town in the eastern Mediterranean where the immigrant groups have identified themselves, have preserved their social identity, as was the custom, by organizing themselves in order to ensure the continued uh, practice of the traditions of their homeland, their gods, their rituals, by which they would be recognized. Some town where the Judeans, who have come, or their parents or grandparents came from Judea, now still maintain their identity as the Judeans. And the Samaritans, as for example in that uh, synagogue uh, uncovered not too long ago in, on the island of Velos, only 100 meters from the Jewish synagogue, um, marked in their inscription as the Israelites of Delos, who send their offerings to sacred Mount Gerizim, not to Jerusalem. So were there also groups, even synagogues, of the Galileans in some of these towns? For that, we have no inscriptional evidence, so I don't know. But our best way of understanding this is to think about the uh, social interactions and the ways of identifying themselves among themselves and against the other ethnoi that existed in every <coughs> Greek-speaking polis of the Eastern Roman Empire. Wherever that was, we do not know in the case of uh, John, but something like that is going on. The relationship of the Johannine Christians to Judaism then was a relationship with organized Jewish communities centered in synagogues that we know from the narrative itself. And by the time the fourth gospel was written, those Christians were no longer connected with those communities. By the time the three Johannine letters were written, only a bit later, there is no sign of any direct interaction with the synagogues, not even of any interest on the part of the writers in the issue of separation. Yet at the time the gospel was written, that rupture with the synagogue remained in the sect's memory as the all-important crisis which had shaped the group's identity and helped to shape their understanding of who Jesus was. One might say that the world of the fourth gospel, in more than one sense, is the world of Judaism. It would be more accurate, however, to say that it is a world in which groups identified as Judeans, Samaritans, and Galileans interact. What's the upshot? It is meaningless, as we've all said, to talk of anti-Semitism in a document like the Fourth Gospel. All the leading characters, apart from Pilate and his soldiers, are Semites, and most of them are Jews, though not all are Judeans. And, so far as the narrative lets us see, their language was Greek. 
the real issue for the history of anti-Semitism then is how these texts were read. Their Wirkungsgeschichte, the history of their influence upon subsequent uh, Christian thinking and practice. Question is then, how was this strange, defensive, in some ways bitter narrative read by subsequent generations when it had become sacred scripture? And when their own situations, their own anxieties, their own perceived enemies of the readers were quite different from the hypothetical picture which I have tried to reconstruct as a historian. And if we want to take the further step to try not just to analyze the way people have read text, but to change the way they read them, then we have a larger and more difficult task. Changing the way we read text doesn't usually happen because some historian argues that they once meant something different. It happens because we read them ourselves in a different social and cultural context because of the interactions we have with those people who are for us the other. Thank you so much. So our final speaker uh, is Hindi Nyman. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Judaic Studies at Yale with secondary appointments in Classics and the Divinity School. Prior to coming to Yale, she was the director of the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Toronto, and before that, she taught at Notre Dame. Her areas of specialization are Second Temple Judaism, Hellenistic Judaism, Hebrew Bible, early rabbinics, and the history of Jewish interpretation, and her primary focus is the history of concepts in ancient Judaism. In addition to many articles and edited books, she's the author of Seconding Sinai, The Development of Mosaic Discourse in Second Temple Judaism, 2003, and Past Renewals, Interpretive Authority, Renewed Revelation, and the Quest for Perfection, 2010. She just finished, I'm happy to say, a major book called Recovering the Future and is now working on a new book about textual unities in Jewish antiquity. Thank you. Thank you, Maury, uh, for the invitation and for the opportunity to think with you um, in this, uh, this very important program that you've helped develop and sustain um, over the last two years. Um, thank you also to Liz Goldhirsch, who I'm sorry couldn't be here this evening, but we look forward to future conversation um, with, with her. Um, I speak to you today not as a scholar of New Testament, but as a scholar of ancient Judaism who is interested in taking up the question that Wayne Meeks just raised about how we read and how we can change the way we read texts of antiquity. Um, And I want to come full circle to Ben's presentation and begin where we started with the 19th century, um, 18th and 19th century, and thinking about the distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. And then I'll reflect a little bit on ways in which our texts, um, Jewish texts and Christian texts, have been read in antiquity and what we might do. I'm going to offer a program for changing the way we read these texts (coughs) of antiquity in order to directly confront 
the challenge of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic readings of these texts in antiquity and also in modernity, thinking very much about where we started with Ben's presentation. Anti-Judaism is distinct from anti-Semitism, but they're often developmentally and structurally related. Anti-Judaism is a critique of religion with ancient roots, which may be completely detached from discriminatory views about Jews. Anti-Semitism started as a backlash against the emancipation of the Jews. The term first being used um, in 1879 by Wilhelm Marr in victory of Judaism over Germanism viewed from a non-religious point of view. It was political and economic opposition to the integration of Jews into civil society in the state, and it was often on the secular basis of cultural and or racial incompatibility rather than on any religious basis. However, the secular basis was in some cases nothing other than the transposition of anti-Judaism into a secular vocabulary. For example, instead of, quote, the Jewish conception of chosenness makes Jews into fossils unfit for life in a world based on the universality of Christianity, we get something like the Jewish conception of chosenness makes the Jews into fossils unfit for modern life based on the universality of human rights. And it's so wonderful what, what Ben did today. It really gave us a, um, um, a, an eye, a much, much richer account of this alternative that I'm offering here. Or let me give you another example. Or instead of, quote, we must defend ourselves against the violence perpetuated by Jews against Christ and Christian children, we hear something like, we must defend ourselves against the violence perpetuated by Jews against the French or German nation and its economy. Over the next 50 years subsequent to this 1879 creation of the term, or the coining of the term anti-Semitism, when the Nazis um, eventually were in charge by around 1939, secular anti-Semitism entered into alliances with persisting anti-Judaism in order to become a potent political force in places like Vienna and Paris. So now I want to turn and briefly reflect with you about um, scholarship. The, the development of anti-Semitism in the 19th century and 20th century coincided with the development of historical scholarship of ancient Judaism, Wissenschaftes Judentums, origins of Christianity, etc. What interests me is how ancient Jewish texts have been studied through the prism of 19th and 20th century anti-Judaism. And here I mention an example that was mentioned in a positive um, registered by Jorg, Wellhausen, or Devetta, um, or Bousset. The long history of Christian anti-Judaism anti continued to influence scholarship in antiquity, even when it claimed to be scientific or objective, in the form of supersessionist assumptions about the legalism of Pharisaic Judaism, its disconnection from prophetic and apocalyptic traditions, and the death of Judaism with the destruction of the Second Temple or even on some accounts after the destruction of the first temple. And just as a sidebar, you know, I don't formally, I've not formally been writing on anti-Semitism, but the question of when prophecy ended in ancient Judaism has really um, kept me thinking and sustained me for a number of years because of the connection with these meta questions that Maury asked me to, to address today. To a certain extent, or, or even last year I spoke um, um, in the Judaic Studies Colloquium, it was a, a paper called The Vitality of Scripture. So that was about ongoing creation of, of new text and new traditions in Judaism. But again, this is really about its vitality um, in its own trajectory, in a trajectory that's separate and independent from Christianity. To a certain extent, even the emergence of anti-Semitism can be detected 
there, that is, in the discussions of Pharisaic Judaism, in the newly positive evaluation of Marcion's total rejection of the Jewish origins of Christianity. And here I have in mind someone, um, for example, um, Adolf um, Harnack and his student uh, Bousset. Um, and I'm going to just give you a, a, a little bit of Bousset here. In his 1903 book entitled The Religion of the Jews in the Age of the New Testament, this became the standard work on Judaism until about the 1950s. Bousset describes Judaism anti- in antiquity in the very same terms that contemporary anti-Semites use to describe Judaism. He spoke of anti-Semitism in the late ancient world, but he also presented it as an understandable response to Judaism calcified and particularistic forms. Of course, what he has in mind here are the legal texts of rabbinic Judaism, and, th- and this, is, this is for him the death, whereas for the history of Judaism, it's actually the life, the core, the, the heart. Um, by 70 CE, according to Bousset, Judaism was a foreign body in the ancient world, and only Christianity could take over what had previously been of value in it. Bousset wrote in The Religion of the Jews in the Age of New Testament, and here's just a quick quote, in the fierce struggles that accompanied the destruction of Jerusalem and that also followed it, even in the diaspora, Judaism took took its form entirely as the people that both hated all and were hated by all, as Tacitus has already described it. More and more, Christianity took the mission out of Judaism's hand, unquote. In contemporary scholarship, in contrast, it's widely acknowledged that both supersessionist and Marcionite varieties of anti-Judaism emerged only in a parting of the ways, which York spoke about um, to a great extent today, that was considerably later than used to be assumed. By this I mean that the intimate connectedness between Judaism and Christianity continued long after the destruction of 70, but also that some of these earlier first century texts were participating in a process of ongoing self-definition rather than invoking an already shaped and well-defined theology or dogma. Thus, even to speak of anti-Judaism in Paul might be said to be anachronistic, and here I uh, very much appreciate what what Dale did um, earlier in his discussion of Paul and Paul's own self-understanding or understandings. At a certain point, however, anti-Judaism did indeed emerge Marcionite or Manichaean project of purging Christianity of its Jewish roots, the supersessionist project of appropriating the Hebrew Bible for Christianity. And this later project of supersession meant that Judaism still could be understood to be a positive contribution to Christianity, but only in the past. So consequently, all good Jews after the death of Judaism had to become Christians so that Philo-Judeus would be remembered or renamed Philo-Christianus. Why? because he could not have really believed in the law and also be used to construct a compelling interpretive framework to transmit the emerging supersessionist theology of writers such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen. There is really an interesting parallelism here. While people such as Tertullian and Eusebius were Christianizing Philo, about 1,500 years later, Hegel, although he knew that Philo was a Jew, still had to classify Philo's philosophy within the context of late ancient and medieval Christian philosophy. This was because on Hegel's historical account, Judaism was long dead by the time that Philo was writing. So Philo's Philo's vital (coughs) contribution, along with Kabbalah, had had to be assigned to Neoplatonism, which was classified by Hegel as Christian. Today, even more sympathetic conceptions of ancient Judaism 
can still preserve what some Jews consider to be residues of anti-Judaism. And here I want to give an example that will surprise many of you, and that is E.P. Sanders. E.P. Sanders is often celebrated for his view of ancient Judaism as covenantal gnomism, offering a profound corrective to Pusey's deeply hateful account, which I quoted earlier, his hateful account of Judaism after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. And yet, E.P. Sanders still betrays a deeply unsympathetic account of the vitality of Judaism and the law. And here I'm going to give you one example that um, I just, I just um, uh, discussed in, in my new book. Um, in, when E.P. Sanders talks about 4th Ezra, he cannot imagine that 4th Ezra is a single unified text because the text of 4th Ezra finds the law redemptive, because the Torah, the new and the old Torah are redemptive. Instead, he will need, that is, Sanders will need to posit multiple sources that cohere with the supersessionist theology instead of a single unified text that struggles with destruction and overcoming that destruction in a world without temple prior to the parting of the ways. Now, let me make it very clear. I don't think that source-critical analysis needs to be reduced to um, anti-Jewish readings in 4th Ezra, but the particular, but his particular critique is justified because of a theology that represents a much later Christian theology, which is then mapped back onto a Jewish text of 4th Ezra. To return to the 18th and 19th century and then try to say something constructive and to take um, Professor Meeks's charge very seriously. So to return to the 18th and 19th century in Europe, where the term anti-Semitism was first coined, this period also coincided with the entry of Jews into the academy and the emergence of Jewish voices within historical scholarship. And here I have in mind Geiger and Gretz contesting negative views of the Pharisees, sometimes engaged in Jewish counter-appropriation of antiquity beginning in the 19th century. And to be perfectly honest, these struggles and these conversations continue till this very day. Um, to, um, and, and I want to say that, um, that there's um, just a to kind of um, fully disclose there are attempts to um, Judaize or rabbinicize ancient texts before the parting of the ways, just like their attempts to Christianize Philo. Two examples, one is Larry Schiffman, who spent an awful lot of time turning the Dead Sea Scrolls into a kind of rabbinic or halachic community. It's not that they're not elements of rabbinic Judaism that can be traced back um, but the imposition is a deeply anachronistic one. Um, another project um, con- connected to Philo of Alexandria is to talk about Philo as a midrashist, um, such as you know, Belkin's work or, or Naomi Cohn's work, um, who will find the oral Torah, Torah Shabbat al all over Philo's discussion of Agraphos Nomos, unwritten law, where it doesn't quite map on, and as Blitzstein has argued, as well as others, that this term is not really a functional term or a category until fourth century, a few centuries, three centuries after Philo himself. So one, one wants to be careful about this kind of anachronistic imposition, either from, from an emerging theological or normative Judaism or from an emerging um, Christianity. Our contemporary challenge, um, um, I think Wayne articulated it so perfectly, um, how are we to read now? How can we read works prior to the parting of the ways as neither Christian nor Jewish, but still indeterminate and capable of leading in either direction? 
Um, for example, um, I mentioned fourth Ezra, there's the language of a liba visha, an evil heart. As, is it original sin? Or is it Yetzir Hara? Is it an evil inclination? The answer is yes and yes. And it's received as both in two different directions as these texts and as the traditions embedded in these texts would be read by rabbis and would be read by later Christian writers. How about the annulment of the law? Um, can the annulment of the law leading to new Torah and a renewal? Or should it be understood, Batla Torah Zu, that it's completely nullified and void, it's no longer operative, and there's a new supersessionist um, mood. Um, are the 70 esoteric books a mere epilogue to, a, to the apocalyptic core, or are they a new oral Torah that accompanies the 24 written books at the end of 4th Ezra? I'd like to suggest, and this is with a small a, I think there's a need for a kind of scholarly asceticism in order to overcome anachronism. It requires a certain asceticism to engage texts in their own terms when we know and at times even live the afterlife and development of these texts in our own religious communities and in our own scholarly communities. Asceticism, however, is only a precondition. Fasting is not practiced for its own sake. One restricts one's appetite so that one may expand one's participation in spiritual life. So it is with the asceticism of scholarship. One restricts one's reliance on the customary prejudices of one's own day in order to enter imaginatively into the life of another epoch, another mentality. We might need to exhibit a kind of imagination that requires us to suspend our own knowledge of the separateness of Judaism and Christianity and our own particular religious experience. But it also requires a willingness to consider expressions of Jewishness or early Christianity that we today would not recognize as genuinely Jewish or Christian. I believe that such practices of intellectual asceticism can enable challenging and potentially transformative conversations between Jews and Christians, and indeed between Jews, Christians, Muslims. Early Jewish texts can offer us new possibilities for connectedness as well as for distinctiveness. But if we are to give these texts voice while at the same time acknowledging both that their accounts did not become normative for these later theological traditions, and that many of these traditions of antiquity nevertheless resurfaced repeatedly in later forms of Judaism and Christianity, we must pay scrupulous attention to the differences of the past. Thank you. And please join me in thanking our five panelists. The Yale Program for the Study of Antisemitism sponsors talks, lectures, panels, and conferences throughout the academic year. Its express objective is to stimulate new research of the highest caliber on antisemitism. This event was co-sponsored by the Department of Religious Studies and the Judaic Studies Program, Yale University. It was also made possible by a grant from the Goldhirsch Yellen Foundation. The panel event took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on April 4, 2013.